Are we good to go? Hi, Tom. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Vidahi. Hi, Derek. <laughs> Hi, Sean. I'm supposed to finish it, right? Sure. Okay, good. Hi, Vidahi. <laughs> good, we've all said hello. Uh, we're joined by Vidahi Joshi. Mm-hmm. Works for Tilda, or is it Skylight? Yes. Tilda writes Skylight. Yeah, I work at Tilda, and yep. we build Skylight. Right. I'm really excited you got the name pronunciation right, because people always do Tildy, and then I have to be like, no, it's Tilda, like Swinton. And then they're like, what? And then they're like, oh, Tilda, like Swinton. But Tilda, yes, <laughs> okay. you got it. As I was like, you know, thinking about an intro here, I feel like you are, it's been a, quite a couple years for you, probably. So yeah. I, I think that you are the, uh, so with apologies to Howard Stern, who first used the title King of All Media, you might be the king of all programming media currently. Oh, no. <laughs> so you've got Queen. Queen, sorry. <laughs> queen of all programming media. You've got the Base CS podcast, the Base CS blog series, video series mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've done several conference talks, keynoted at a conference recently. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. You're everywhere. Thank you. <laughs> and now you're on our podcast. <laughs> and the question is, what media do I do next? A book. Uh, that would that would be the the, 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 the <laughs> traditional next step, I think. Uh, spoiler. No comment. That is maybe in the works. Uh, too bad I didn't work fast enough to make it manifest. But yes, <laughs> I'm most familiar with you from the podcast form of Base CS mm. because that is my chosen form of media consumption. So I I really like the podcast that you do with Saran because it is obvious that you have like a good rapport with her. And yes, it just sounds yeah. like two people talking and explaining something to each other or like having a conversation. So I appreciate it. I really like it. I'm so I'm a glad. bit of a fan. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> At first, when we launched that podcast, uh, we were like, I think it was before season one, we recorded all eight episodes. And then we were like, are people going to like this? Because it just sounds like us talking. And we think it's funny. But I have no <laughs> idea if anyone else is going to like it. And we're like, our perception of being funny could be so skewed. But it worked out okay, so that's good. People liked it. I think we can both relate to that uh, <laughs> very well. <laughs> when we first started, we felt like, oh, we had to, we have to have a specific topic, and we need to discuss what, how we're going to yeah. go about discussing it beforehand, and we mm-hmm. can't stray too far. And then, you know, then this happened. This is just a, a thing we were talking about with Aaron. I would just like to point out rose gold iPhone. Mm. Aaron mentioned he was sad that they're they don't make a rose gold iPhone anymore. So wait, they what what? That's what he said. Are you sure they don't? Maybe we're starting I vicious no rumors. Aaron's starting Aaron, vicious rumors, Aaron maybe. <laughs> also has a rose gold iPhone, though, and he was mentioning that he was very sad that they are no longer... I'll need to investigate this. I was just about to upgrade my iPhone, but maybe I, mean, I you should... you covered it in a case, so it doesn't really matter. I know, but look, matter. this case is, like, falling apart. It's, uh, I don't know, it's not doing well. Sure. Um, but... Anyway. If rose gold's off the table. I don't know. <laughs> Got to reevaluate everything. Sorry for that. For that random tangent. <laughs> so, how is your conference talk prep coming? So, you're going to talk a little bit before me, and you're talking yes. about the router. We're both in the same track, mm-hmm. so how we're talking about how track. it works. Track. <laughs> yeah. So how the problem I-, I think with how it works is that one, you have to actually understand how it works, mm-hmm. which takes a significant amount of like research. But then it's not just enough to like get up there and spew it all back at people. Like you have to be like, all right, this is this is the breadth. And now I have to pick the things that are important. And also, I need to not scare anybody or make anybody, like, tune out within five minutes of the talk. And I think that's actually harder. So I spent weeks, like, learning about the router. And the hard part was I wrote, like, seven pages. And I was like, this is way more than half an hour of content. And learning how to trim that down, that's – I don't like it. But I have to do it. 
yeah and i had the same experience like when i first wrote the when i did the first draft of the migrations thing and i was like okay i'm gonna try it now so yeah. I did it and it was 50 minutes long. <laughs> so like, that's not going to work. Oh my God. And I was like, oh, but I like, but all this stuff, like it's true. It's all right. And then I was like, but <laughs> these are facts. I don't need six <laughs> examples of this. And I probably don't need to talk about this at all or this or this or this. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's a better place to be than I think. Like I have 15 minutes of content. Yeah. But <laughs> question, but are you good. done with your slides? Yeah. Yeah. I'm done. Yep. Yep. I made one change yesterday when I saw somebody tweet that they suggested that speakers put their Twitter handle on all of their slides uh-huh. so that they knew, like, if they wanted to tweet during the talk, they knew what handle to use. Mm-hmm. So that's the change. That's the only change I've made since I got here. So I feel pretty good about that. That is very good. <laughs> and I you always are not, just put mine on the first slide. I, I mm-hmm. had done that, but I was like, this is a decent idea. And now the software I use allows footers. So I made a little Oh, footer. do they? Yeah. Oh, I'll have to do that next time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, bo- we both use um, Dexet. Because we like markdown slides. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's just one of those, like, it, it looks good enough. <laughs> and we write, and then you write your slides. It's all re- you really need. <laughs> just, just enough. It's fine. Because well, it's like Reveal.js, you have to, like, do all kinds of work to make it look mm-hmm. nice. And this one's just like, yeah, no, it looks fine. It's not going to be as polished as, like, Sandy Metz or Katrina Owen would have on their slides. But it, it's fine. Yeah. It gets the job done, which is fine. Yeah. I've, I've noticed when you speak, slides are, they're important. But, like, I try to have less text and fewer things because I'm like it's a thing for you to look at but really I want you to listen to what I'm saying because that's what's important. My wife gave her first talk yesterday Mm -hmm. and one piece of advice I gave her was that your slides are the least important part of your talk. Mm -hmm. Which is why to answer your question no my slides are not done because he just said they're the least important part. He gave you an excuse there you go it'll be fine you don't need slides at all just you know you'll just speak the code. They'll happen overnight (laughs) somehow it'll be okay. On the on the keeping the audience entertained though at RustConf, um, I, I gave a talk. I think you were there, right? I loved your talk. Thank you. There were well, because at that point, I think I hadn't actually written very much Rust. I had done like the workshop, yes, and I wrote Rust later on. And your talk was one where I was like, "It's almost okay that I don't know a lot of this technical stuff because you're explaining the concept." Yes. And so now I'm not intimidated to go figure out technically what you're talking about because I have a mental model of what to work with yeah, and well, then it was awesome and, and that was and so that's exactly the the thing right and, uh, um, so for those who haven't seen the talk the what it ended up being and it was not the talk I was planning on giving but um, <laughs> what it ended up being was a detailed walkthrough of what the term monomorphization means how that affects code that we write in rust a little bit about how to write code that is uh, likely to to as able to take advantage of this optimization and then make that accessible to every single member of the audience <laughs> was the hard part because uh, it was a single track conference. Like I could have given a much more technical talk if it were at RailsConf because people could opt out. Mm-hmm. Whereas there, right? So there were people like you who are experienced developers, but uh, hadn't done much Rust before. Yeah. There were also people there who were brand new to programming, and then there was also the Rust core team, who I need, you know, and you have to find a way to make it accessible. Uh, and then for the people who are not going to learn anything, also make it entertaining. Yeah, and I, I think you did it from the approach of a Rubyist perspective, right, or something, or you, there was like something. I showed um, Ruby was my example of a language that that doesn't take advantage of it. Yeah. I used uh, the difference in hash set uh, implementations. I remember that because I think that was like, oh, now I can hook into what you're saying because I have some context for what you're talking about, which is really helpful. Although one mistake that I made uh, that Ashley pointed out to me afterwards is that I just assumed that everybody in the audience knows what a hash set is. Mm. Mm. So if I ever give that, I I mean, I'm I'm not going to be giving that talk again (laughs) because Rust conferences are not a uh, a conference cycle that you tend to recycle talks, (laughs) given that there are three of them. But uh, 
yeah, that would have been a thing to have improved. The ability for people to opt out of or into your talk in a multi-track conference, I think, is like, particularly with this talk, I was talking to Sean on Slack maybe a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, as I was preparing the talk, and I think I said to you, don't come to this talk. It's going to be awful. I was like, because <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't yet embraced the like, this is the how it works track. And it's totally cool for me to be like, here's a whole bunch of code mm. and we're going to step through it together and it'll be okay. And I'll tell you the important parts and not the unimportant parts, mm. but was instead trying to make it like, well, how are they going to take this back and immediately change how they're doing something in their day to day work? And I think that there is some of that in there. So go ahead and come to the talk. Uh, <laughs> but I, once I realized that that didn't need to be, like I didn't need to have that as the backbone, mm -hmm. then it was like, okay, let me just focus on like what I think the really interesting technical bits of schema management and Rails mm -hmm. is. And then once I did that, like the stuff that might be more broadly applicable just kind of came out as I was doing it. Mm -hmm. But I think that if I had felt the pressure of like a single track conference and not be able to like, okay, when they selected this talk, what did they want out yeah. of it, right? And so I think that that was the single track, multi-track thing isn't something I had thought of until you just mentioned like, that was a single track conference. This be hard. And you did recently, you did a keynote where, so you had to be like, okay, were you, was that like a thing that you had proposed? And then they were like, let's make this a keynote or was it, did they, did you get no, invited? No, they to invited do? me to do it. And it's yeah. funny because last year I was like, okay, I've done like, I, my first talk was like a five minute lightning talk. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I did a talk on like debugging and I did talks on like code reviews, mm -hmm. like some that were like more, I guess. The term would be soft talks, which I don't really like that term. But And then some that were very technical. And I was like, all right, what's the next thing? And I was, and I was like, all right, keynote, do mm -hmm. it. Yep. And I was like, I don't know when that's going to happen. Maybe I'll do it next year. And then I got invited to speak like the next month at EmberConf. And I was like, well, i got to figure out a new goal for the next year because I've done this. <laughs> um, but keynotes are interesting because I think Sarah May gave this example once where it's most talks in a conference are in the weeds or in the trees. And keynotes are meant to be a picture of the forest. Mm -hmm. um, and you're trying to give a broad perspective of either, either the industry or like what you're all here to do. And it's theoretically supposed to be inspiring and mm -hmm. supposedly, I hope ours was inspiring um, and seemed like it was. Um, but that's like a whole different way of writing a talk because it's so focused on the narrative arc, which is the, the case I think in, you know, technical talks too, but you don't have code necessarily to back you up. Yeah, you it's, don't it's, have it's, it's hard things. to fill an hour. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think ours was like 35 or 40 minutes. Oh, but. Okay. And you also did it with Saran, so you had to like... That was fun. <laughs> but also finding time to prep together yes. and to like yeah. write together, prep together, and practice together. Yeah. yeah. We we both, at some point, we were like, we would do a lot of like Skype calls or like Google Hangouts rather. Mm -hmm. And we would just be like, all right, let's work on the slides. Let's work on the script. And at mm -hmm. some point, like a week before the conference, I was like, I'm not nervous. Are you nervous? And she was like, not really. This is the most prepared I've ever been for a talk. <laughs> and I think it's because you're accountable to somebody else when you're doing right. dual talks. Like, you know that there has to be a nice fluid integration. Right. I can't there. just do this at the last minute. Yes. I have, like, yeah. Case in point. <laughs> I, I don't have Saran here. So right. now I'm like, oh, I need to cut more things. Um, I just have to bring her to all my conferences, I guess. I guess so. We, we can't speak without just each other. Just tell her she's going to speak. On the, <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> do you submit multiple proposals to the same conference? I think I have once. I spend a lot of time on proposals, so I'm too generally exhausted by one gotcha. to do multiple. And I just try to do the one that I care about the most. That's probably smart. <laughs> <laughs> Especially now with the baby, the set of conferences I can go to is severely limited. So it's important that, you know, it's, it's a higher risk yeah. thing for, for me to, to be able to speak at, at a conference I'd like to, I would like to speak at. Then I run the risk of, like, so I submitted three to RailsConf. And one was a talk that I've given in the past that mm -hmm. I just thought could use a wider audience. 
Second was a talk I was really interested in giving. Mm-hmm. And then the third was the talk that I was pretty sure would just get accepted. Mm-hmm. And um, based off of the timing of the change to the updated at timestamp, <laughs> which if you pay attention to, you can learn a lot of information about. I believe the talk I really wanted to give and the, and, and the one that I gave both made it to the last round. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was just, okay, we've accepted two talks from the same person. Which track is better served by, 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 having, uh, by having them? I wish there was a mechanism for feedback in that scenario mm-hmm. of like, hey, yeah, so I've submitted multiple talks. If you're good with either one, I think this one will be the better talk. Like if you mm-hmm. could rank which one you like. Yes. Mm. That would be great. That would help because honestly, like, you want to be invested. Ideally, all the talks you're submitting, you're like somewhat excited about. Oh, no. And it was still a good talk and it was still one I wanted to give. It was, it was like, you know, you say you don't have favorite children. You do. (laughs) You do. That was your favorite child. That was, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I think um, with conference talks in general, I feel like whenever I write a proposal, I end up usually only writing one, but I'm writing it like, I'm imagining what the talk is that I wished existed, when, like the talk I wanted to hear. Like if I'm deciding between two proposals, I'm like, well, this is the, like I wish this talk had existed when I was learning about schema migrations. Hmm. I, someone would benefit from it. Or in the case of the Rails router, I was like, this is the talk that I would like to hear, but no one's given it. And also, I don't know the content, so I'm just going to try to give it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to try to learn something along the way. And that's like how I narrow it down. But I don't, I don't I'm so impressed when people can do multiple. Because I maybe just spend way too much time on my CFPs. I mean, I spend, I don't know, probably two hours total, I would think, on, yeah. on, on a proposal. A lot of that's just, you know, getting feedback from other people, too. Yeah. I guess I also used to do it because I would, back when I was really on the conference circuit, right, I would give, uh, I mean, 2016, I gave, six, uh, I think it was 16 talks that year. Oh, my gosh. So, like, I would have all these proposals prepared because I, I knew, uh, yeah, this year I wanted to do, like, three or four talks, and so i just write the proposals for all of them, mm-hmm. and then every conference would get, not not usually all of them, but the ones <laughs> I thought would be applicable, most applicable to, to that conference. So you would write for and reuse them? Yeah. Back then I was giving the same talk usually three or four times, mm. which I enjoy doing because it gives you a chance to really refine it. Yeah. By the end, it's like almost different and very perfect. Yes. Because you're like, I know exactly what I should do differently. <laughs> Theoretically. I also, no, so I just, I, I, I very much embrace like to keep, when I give a talk multiple times, I don't know if you do anything similar to, but like to make it a little different every time you, mm-hmm. you give it. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of embrace that I will go on long, loosely related tangents <laughs> that I find interesting. And hopefully the audience does. But it also makes uh, timing basically impossible to set up. So I just put three endings in all of my talks. All of them? Yep. How do you decide which one to do? Where I am on time. This is like choose your own adventure for That's conference what, speakers. Yeah, this I will get to a point and I'm like, okay, if I go on a lot of tangents, this is where the talk's going to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I write that and then, you know, less like a choose your own adventure and more just like a newspaper article. You can stop reading a newspaper article after mm-hmm. any paragraph. Mm-hmm. Right. As long as you've gotten to the main thesis of, right. which right. I guess with the article. paragraph in a newspaper article, that's the lead, right? Yes, it's like yeah. the most well, important thing is right on the top. with a good conference. Talk, <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I assume that they're going to go to Twitter after about two minutes because I, I didn't make enough jokes. So I try <laughs> to make sure that they got at least the main thesis by then. Yeah. Do, yeah. You, do you do anything similar? I'm the opposite. I'm like, I need one perfect ending. It needs to be tied up with a bow. Uh, and I know, like, I'm building up to it. But I do have a little bit of anxiety with my jokes. And then sometimes I'll ad-lib the jokes. And often I regret it. But then sometimes I'll say something and people are like, oh, that's so funny. And I was like, that wasn't even a joke. That was... <laughs> I was totally serious about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't have the, the Aaron Patterson humor. But I, I do try to, like, have some sort of narrative arc, which is what I think 
is fairly consistent in my talks. Mm -hmm. But that's just, I think, because my background is like in literature. And if something doesn't end, I get like, for, like I don't know. I just get shaky. I'm like, why? Where's the ending? What happens? <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's a little bit of a perfectionist tendencies, maybe. Sure. So you, you mentioned your background. So in the keynote that you gave, which mm -hmm. I've watched a video of, you had talked about like the inspiration for the base CS blog post stuff being like you went through this interview process and they asked you like one of those typical like quizzy computer mm -hmm. science-y things. And you were Do you like, want to know what it was? It was linked lists, right? Did no. you say that or something? Oh, it was, yeah. Well, I didn't actually say what the problem oh, was because I was. didn't okay. know if it was relevant. Also, or I didn't want to freak people out. Okay. Um, <laughs> do you know Conway's Game of Life? Mm-hmm. They asked me to code Conway's Game of Life in PHP, which I don't oh. know PHP. And they told me this. It was a 30-minute interview, and they told me in minute 25. And they're like, all right. And I was like, so how do you PHP? Like, I don't <laughs> also, how do you, what's Conway's Game of Life? I just asked them a lot of questions. But yes, I, that was the hard question. See, I will admit, I, don't, I, I am a computer programmer who hears people be like, and then I implemented Conway's Game of Life. And I'm like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. What is it? Somebody tell me what it is. It's um, <laughs> basically you have like a grid of cells and there's mm -hmm. like, I don't, I'm not going to say the rules correctly. You should totally Google it. But basically, you have to decide whether the cells around the center cell are living or dead, and that's where the life comes in. So if it's black, it's like living, and if it's white, it's dead. Or maybe it's the other way around. But basically, if you Google it and you just Google Conway's Game of Life, you'll see animations because there's like an algorithm to solving which cell will turn what color. Mm -hmm. And they're really cool. Uh, I've never used it in my job. <laughs> no, and, and you right? wouldn't. It's, it's, it's a programming exercise, yeah. right? It's not. It's like, it's not it's even. It's, it's like mathematical, not, right? Where you're like. Uh, sort. I mean, it's just. It's a thing that. I mean, Global Day of Code Retreat. Mm. They just impl they implement Conway's Game of Life over and over in whatever language yeah. you choose, usually with a pair, and then they just add a new constraints. Yeah. Now do it without conditionals. Wow, because it wasn't hard enough. They're like, oh, let's throw in another thing. Well, it just it gives you, it's a, it's a, you know, thinking it, exercise. Yes. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's a, it's like, a, it's more of a kata than anything else. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah. it is also Turing complete is a very interesting point of note, I guess. Yeah. So you meant, you had mentioned that like, you felt like you wanted to be able to like, not that like you needed to answer those in order to get some job that you wanted, but like you wanted to be able to answer those. What was your background before you started getting into programming mm. that you felt like you needed to like, I'm going to push through this artificial ceiling here or whatever. Yeah. So I went to college for English literature because I want to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. And then this was like 2008. And everybody's like, journalism's dead. Newspapers are going to be obsolete. And now, like, <laughs> years later, I'm like, oh, wow, journalism's an interesting place to be. Yeah. I don't we could have used some of that journalism. <laughs> now, now our opinion is, oh, God, newspapers are the only thing keeping the world safe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, my background was like geared towards writing and I went abroad for a while and I taught like literature and I taught sixth grade abroad, which was fun. And I think the combination of like writing and education, like communication, but then also communicating ideas to people who might not know them. Mm -hmm. I think those two things, I always wanted to bring it into programming, but I didn't know how. Um, and I transitioned into writing code um, because I, when I came back from living abroad, I was like, I'm going to be a freelance writer. Let's just see how this goes. Pro tip, did not go well. <laughs> it was not right. But all these editors would be like, oh, just send us your portfolio. It would be great if it's a website. Just send us all your articles. And I was like, okay, I can make a website. It'll just be ugly. It's fine. Let's just give them, give them like a URL to have in general. And then I would look at other people's websites. I'm pretty sure they were using like Squarespace or I don't know, even know if Squarespace was a thing then. But they had these beautiful websites. And I was like, oh, I can't send this. 
this is like ugly <laughs> HTML. I need to do something. I just need to like make this color or I need to like make this spinner. Look at this person. They have like a loading spinner. I can do that. And the rest, as they say, is history because I started right. Googling things and then I just started building things. And then um, my dad is actually a software engineer. He doesn't really like write code anymore. Now he just manages people. But mm. he was like, yeah, if you like this, like you should maybe learn like a backend language or a framework so you can build things aside from static sites. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I ended up in Rails. That makes sense to me now because like I was I was wondering what that backstory was because like you're very good at teaching things mm -hmm. and so like and also communicating them written obviously with the blog posts and things like that so like the literature and teaching background makes 100% sense to me like I've gone I'm my background from college is in computer science so like I've gone through the lessons on many of the things that you're talking about and either have forgotten them didn't totally understand them or even when I do remember them I still appreciate hearing in my case, I usually do the podcast, but hearing like you and Saran talk about them because mm. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting way to explain that. Mm -hmm. Or like, I never thought about that. Or like, oh, I wish somebody taught me that way when I was, <laughs> when I was learning this in college. I might have retained it. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Because because you have the CS degree, mm -hmm. at what point in your career were you like, oh, this is something that I learned in school. Actually, this is helping me right now. Um, I don't know. And I worry. I said before that I thought that like... So many of the people that I work with on a day-to-day -day basis don't have a degree in computer mm -hmm. science, and I think that's totally fine. And I've said before that like maybe that's overrated, and maybe like the skyrocketing cost of college that like we're going to need to find a way to do this without any of that anyway. And mm. but I feel like that's easy for me to say as somebody who has a computer science degree and maybe isn't fully appreciating the doors that it opened for me and the knowledge that it might have given me that I'm not recognizing that I yeah. got from school. The point of a degree is more to teach you how to learn. Uh, oh my God. Yes, <laughs> this way from the praise hands emoji. <laughs> that is so true. People don't people don't say that that often. I feel like I right. totally agree with that. Like it's fine that that schools are teaching Java or you know things that aren't necessarily going to directly be tools that you use mm -hmm. in your job. Like we're not actually going to probably ever solve the traveling salesman problem in any of the applications we work on. We might. There's a slim chance, but the, mm -hmm. the, the, they're not teaching that right because that's totally a thing that programmers do. It's a useful tool to learn about how to learn algorithms in general. I wish that somebody had made that statement to 18-year-old me, that like what you're going to college to do is learn how to learn this stuff. Because instead, I was just looking at it like, I don't think I'm ever going to need to know Scheme for my job. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm just going to tune out, right? And instead, not appreciating the fact that like what they're trying to do is teach me like fundamentals so that I can because they don't know what I'm going to need to know by the mm -hmm. time I graduate or four years after I graduate. Right, especially if you're going to be working in a language known as JavaScript. Uh, <laughs> the, if the stuff you would learn four years before you graduate will almost certainly be completely irrelevant by the time you graduate if they were trying to teach you actual tools and techniques that you would right. use. Yeah. But to answer your original question, there are times when like maybe I don't fully appreciate it, but like. I don't know, like thinking about like algorithmic complexity and being like, oh, that's big O of N or mm -hmm. N squared or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not that I know that that is N squared. It's that I know how to think about the problem to figure out that that's what it is. And if I don't know the particular language that's and I just know that that's worse, obviously, than this other thing, which would perform fewer operations. Mm -hmm. So knowing that it was N squared was like allowed me to communicate about that on a way that other people who knew that language could talk to me about it that way. And what school taught me was how to think about those things. And I didn't recognize that in the time at the time, but it was a thing that has like come up before. And things like, uh, <laughs> I think it was like six months ago, I was writing some thing for a client. And I was like, oh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was like, I need a data structure that does this, this, and this. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need a linked list. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, That's 
And so I, I like wrote, I wrote in our, in our Slack, I was like, I need a linked list to solve this problem. And people were like, some people were like, what's a linked list? And so then it became like a discussion about that. And they were like, are you sure you really need a linked list? Because nobody ever generally needs mm. a linked list. Yeah. And I was like, uh, yeah, I do. And then like a few hours later, like, how'd you end up implementing that? I was like, I just use an array. <laughs> <laughs> It turns out I didn't really need the linked list part of it, but it felt really great to be like in the Slack. There's probably like a Slack history if I find it of me being like, I'm going to use this. I'm finally going to use this, but it's useful to know anyway. I don't know. I think your point about language is very interesting. I've been getting involved in the Rust compiler uh, more lately, and I've been trying to fight with some people on, hey, so I get that this is like a defined mathematical term. But maybe we should not use names in the compiler that only makes sense if you have a degree in making compilers. If we want to encourage <laughs> more than Nico and, and Aaron, mostly Nico, to work, uh, a very, very, very smart human being who does a lot of work on the Rust compiler uh, to work on it. And like there was a specific one that was called uh, De Bruijen Index. <laughs> um, Do you know what that means? I don't. I should because a there's a Wikipedia page for it. Oh, B somebody actually explained it to me, but they explained it with like, and there were two words. I'm like those are th that is what you should name it. That is what it does in the, in the compiler. Mm -hmm. That is what a programmer would think w would understand, not the name of some I'm assuming mathematician <laughs> who invented indexing or something. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. Do, to I, do any of you guys know what a Debrugian index is? No. no. Okay. Yeah. Just, make, just making sure. Uh, so uh. there's. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I thought I thought you had a pun or something. So how about how about you now that you've written all of these things and now you have a good understanding of all these fundamentals? Do you find that it has helped your day job at all? Yes. Okay. But not because I'm sitting there writing link lists. Actually, right. I think it's because. I'm not trying to troll the keynote, I promise. This is just like the theme of a lot of things in my life. <laughs> There's just a lot of abstractions that you work with every day, and abstractions are a wonderful thing. But if you ever are curious about how something works, if you ever run into a bug, if you ever are trying to do something against the framework, which usually it's kind of like, why are you doing that? But also sometimes it happens. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what you're talking about. Rails is always perfectly designed to do whatever problem you're trying to solve, <laughs> especially active record. <laughs> Um, Never gets in anybody's way, ever. No, not, not, not at all. <laughs> um, but like at some point, you have to kind of take your head out of the clouds. And like it actually makes you a better software developer, in my opinion, where you're like, all right, I've just accepted this as fact and truth, and I'm just going to do it. And at some point, you're like, okay, this is not enough. I need to actually figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And there are so many of these concepts that are part of these abstractions. And I think part of it is intentional, where part of it's like, if you don't know this information, you will never know the abstraction, and you're going to be kept out of it. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is there's an assumption that it's too hard to learn, even though if I think you break down the concepts, it's actually not that hard. It's maybe it's just not explained the right way. And sometimes it has to do with things like naming, where it's like, in order to understand how it works, you don't necessarily need to get to the nitty gritty. You're like, I just need to know basically what's happening. And yeah. then I can start to solve this problem or figure out what the problem is. Yeah, I call it tunnel vision. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's very important when you're coming into something with no knowledge. If you're coming in as a first-time contributor to Rails and you're trying to fix some specific bug, you are not going to be able to understand how the entire system works, mm -hmm. nor do you need to. You just need to understand the very narrow code path related to the bug you're trying to track down. Mm -hmm. And understanding the narrow things does sometimes mean you run into some of those fundamental concepts. Yeah. And it's like, 
I don't think it should be so hard to figure out those things. And I agree. It should just be more accessible to people, I think, because yeah. it's just like a wall that seems unnecessary to me. Yeah. Of course, no, now, no. now that you say that, like, I'm thinking, like, of course, that is when it comes most, when I'm like, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me, or there's a bug here, mm -hmm. and I need to go deeper, and it's like, okay, what's happening here? And then I'm starting to, okay, I understand what this data structure is, and why they might use it, and mm -hmm. okay, so now I, need to know, I know where to look next, like, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And some of that is just process, but some of it is actually stuff I absorbed through computer science teachings that I didn't realize I was absorbing, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of those things are used to build software in general, too, right? Like, not, maybe not just Rails internals, but, mm -hmm. like, you think about, like, Facebook and Twitter. If you understand how, what a graph is, like, you mm -hmm. now have a new mental model to understand exactly. how that works. Mm -hmm. And it, it's very empowering, I think. So I wish it was not as exclusive as it is, but I do think it is changing. It is surprising to me, like, when I think during the keynote you had mentioned, like, when you set out to start writing the base CS stuff, you were like, I was surprised to find that this doesn't exist. And I was like... Wait, does it exist? <laughs> I was like, it must. It must. And then I was like, no, I don't. I've never really come across anything like that. And that's when I was like, oh, there's going to be a book coming. <laughs> <laughs> this is all going to get into book form. <laughs> Hopefully, none of that stuff changes. Books don't always. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see how it ages. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's a thing that should exist. And it was only when I tried to learn it myself that I was like. This is not a thing. Like, right, there, where do like, I learn this? There's like the gang of four book of like data structures mm. and you can read that and understand them. But there's I not do, like an approachable like I'm not taking a data structures course currently. Yeah. I just want to know what these things are. Yeah. What was uh, Tom Stewart's book called? Do you remember? Mm -hmm. he, wrote, he wrote a book that I remember just really enjoying and it was a lot of CS fundamentally things written for programmers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like it involved... Explaining it was like rocking algorithms, right? Because that's another one that I've heard is good. I don't think so. But I don't know who wrote it. I remember, I, I just remember it explained what the lambda calculus is and why you should care with Ruby code, which hmm. I thought was really cool. And also involved like six pages of just incredibly dense, impossible to read, unintelligible lambda calculus, which was like the program that they that they were writing, but you remove all of the assigning things to constants that, that were being used to make anything fit in a amount of space that was that was readable, uh, and then, you know, get rid of all that and have the actual lambda calculus, and it was just an absolute nonsense mess, and it was quite funny. Yeah. Understanding computation. Thank you, yes. I, Googled, I Googled while you nice. were talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have so, to check that out. Yeah. That sounds interesting. So, like, when you're not uh, peeling back the layers and using this information in, in that aspect of your job, or you're not doing your podcasts, blog posts, video series, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, Tilda? So, I, mo I work exclusively on Skylight. I'm mm -hmm. lucky that I actually can do that, because there are other people that are on our team who consult. Mm -hmm. um, and because of their consulting, I get to work on Skylight, which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, but I basically work on... A lot of it is like interacting with customers and helping them understand their performance issues. Mm -hmm. But we have like features that we work on. We're working on a kind of thinking about a new product that will help improve. I don't know how much I'm supposed to say. Uh, <laughs> help improve performance Things. stuff. Uh, <laughs> but the big thing that we've been working on is Skylight for open source, which yeah. has been really fun because I think it's something that we wanted to do for a while. But it requires actually a lot of code changes and then like getting people on board for like, hey, you should expose your performance data to people because you'll get new contributors and like right. you will have people who will now be like, oh, this is an easy performance fix that I can do. And maybe I've never PR to an OSS app, but 
now I like know how to do right. that. Or I want to learn how to squash these performance issues, and here's yeah. a place I can do that. Like yeah. I don't have anything right now to work on, but I can do it here. Yeah. And so the idea behind the skylight for open source software is basically if you have an open source, would it really only make sense for applications, really? Yeah, thought, yeah. any Rails or Ruby-based app. Right. Yeah. Then you can get access for free. Yeah, right. so yeah, provided you have your data public, which is actually not, it actually ends up being a very good thing. Oh, that's the trade-off is like you must make the... You your performance, performance data stuff. is going to be like on a public dashboard, but also right. if you're an OSS app, then that's what you want. Your anyway. your yeah. code is also public, so yeah. it's not a, not yeah. a new thing. <laughs> Can we have Rust support, please? I would very much <laughs> like to install Skylight on crates.io. <laughs> I do love I so Skylight is my favorite. This is not a Skylight ad, but it is my favorite of the performance monitoring mm. tools. But when I have cause to go outside of Ruby, it makes me sad that I can't use it. So like yeah. for Elixir stuff. I don't care about Rust, but for <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. All right, so yeah, Rust, I'm good with being the only one who cares. <laughs> I'll start writing a list. Yeah, write all that stuff. That'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now but, you have all the computer science fundamentals to uh, implement the data structures you need for these things in whatever language you want. So. <laughs> yeah, I can totally do that by myself. <laughs> I know how to do that. I don't. Um, <laughs> but it's a lot. My, my day-to-day work is mostly in Rails and Ember, which okay. is pretty cool. Hopefully cool. it'll be more Rust soon, though. That's I'm super stoked about Rust. but And we do have it running in production, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But we have such a small team. so. Yeah, and I hear you guys might be looking at moving the back end stuff to Rust too, right? That'll be cool. I hope we do, because then I can rewrite the back end. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will know how it works. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What else are you excited about that we haven't asked you about? What's uh, next? I'm really excited to not be doing Base CS this year. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not writ- like written stuff. I'm doing other right. stuff, but... Yeah, I don't know. I was talking to Sean about like burnout and doing a lot of things outside of work, and mm-hmm. I like I think at the end of last year I was like, it is so important to not do that sometimes, right? Because I think there's a little <laughs> bit of pressure in the industry, and like in my situation, it wasn't that, but I think there can be pressure to be like, go to all the conferences and write all the blog posts and have your side project and like mm-hmm. have a PR to op- an open source app, and it's just like, okay, how do you do all that and also function at your job and be a normal human and also be excited to go to work and work on code again. Right. I would like it if more people were asking the question, cool, can I have time at work to do that, please? Mm, <laughs> this thing that yeah. is apparently an expectation of continuing to grow in this industry. Like mm-hmm. this is a thing this is a thing that Tess was talking about in her talk yesterday. Especially for parents, it is not reasonable to expect people to spend a significant amount of time outside of work on career growth if we're going to make that mandatory. Yeah. Or if we're gonna be make that the way that you distinguish yourself. I think it implicitly is kind of mandatory in a lot of ways. Like maybe yeah. nobody says it, but there is like a little bit of an. Oh, well, some people definitely say it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. We talked before also like about people want to see open source contributions on GitHub as part of your GitHub as is of, your resume. Kind yeah, of thing. Yep. and it's yeah. just like cool. So we are self-selecting for people who are willing to work nights and weekends for free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Should we do questions? Yeah, we did promise audience questions. Okay. Um, it's kind of hypothetical, but. Um, now that you did all the base CS stuff and you had already been programming for a couple of years, I think, before mm-hmm. you started that, I don't know if you thought you got more out of studying that after you've already kind of got it into things and, and learned quite a bit as a developer, or if you think, would you have gotten the same benefit or return on the investment if you had done it as a first step when you first started decided you want to do you know development? Oh, that's a great question. My answer is I'm very glad I did it when I did it. And I did it because it was very organic because I was at the point where I was like, I feel comfortable enough with the tools I'm using every day, but now there's this whole subset of things that I'm like, I don't know what this is, and now I know it exists. I think if I had done it early on, I wouldn't have cared. 
and it's similar to what you were talking about, Derek, where I'm like, great, it's a linked list. I don't. Right. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to like not learn any more about this. But the reason I got into it is because I would start to see these things and I had an impetus to try to figure it out because I organically stumbled upon it. And I, whenever anybody asks me about this, I'm like, don't try to push yourself to learn it. Like, cause if you just start learning the things that you already have encountered, like if you go a little bit off the happy path and you're like, I'm going to like explore this thing, this seems interesting. And then you learn about it. At some point, you will have an impetus to learn another thing that's connected, and then you'll learn the next thing that's connected. Because when I started BCS, like, my goal was Conway's Game of Life. That was the end, and the beginning was binary, and I didn't know what was in between. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll oh, fill it in. And then I was like, oh, trees are a thing, graphs are a thing, hash tables are a thing. I didn't know what they were, what order to do them in. But I was like, I'll start with one thing, and it will connect. I had faith that it would connect to something else, and eventually it did. Mm-hmm. But I think if I had just been like, all right, today I'm going to learn about hash tables. Tomorrow I'm going to learn about the traveling salesman problem. It would have not meant anything to me because I didn't see the connections automatically. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting to have a few years of experience before. I actually think it, it's more... You're more well-equipped to see how it might apply to your actual day-to-day job or, like, you know, your open-source contributions or what have you because you have context for it versus starting from scratch and trying to understand why it matters. That's kind of the same. Like, it used to be common for people to ask. Not so much anymore. I wonder why. Maybe it's because it's more obvious. But people would be like, well, I want to learn Rails. Should I start by learning Ruby? Mm. Or should I start by learning Rails? And I would just, at the time, my answer was always like, here's this agile web development on Rails book. Yep. Go through this book, build a thing that you think is like, whoa, cool, I built a thing. Mm-hmm. It's like a demo app for a store or whatever, but like I built a thing and then go where that takes you. Mm-hmm. Like if that takes you to like, now I want to build another app, that's fine. If that takes you to like, I want to understand Ruby better, then pick up the pickaxe book or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now, nowadays I feel like the starting point is like Michael Hartle's Rails tutorial or mm-hmm. something like that. I still recommend Agile Web Development with Rails just because it is the only one that has a test suite that informs no. me if I've made the book incorrect. Sure. So, I mean, <laughs> not digging on Mike at all. His stuff is great. I, I know a lot of people said it, but I recommend the book because this is one thing that I know for sure continues to be accurate. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. So yeah, do what you find interesting, I think is really the key. I agree with that. And what's interesting about that is if you're doing the thing that you're already excited about, like, I'm going to build a recipe app or I'm going to build a blog app, whatever, mm-hmm. you're going to have the personal grit to keep pushing yourself to learn the thing that seems hard because you're, you have a personal investment mm-hmm. versus just like, I'm going to write Fibonacci. It's like, okay, this is part of my reason that it's hard for me with Rust, where I'm like, I need to do something with Rust. I'm not going to just like re- write recursive things because I don't care right. and I will give up because <laughs> it doesn't mean anything to me. Right. No, I mean, I only got into it because we happened to have a C++ project at ThoughtBot at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I heard Rust is like way better than C++. Let me try porting this. And then it was. I fell in love with the type system and was like, I wonder if this could work for higher level things. So then I went and built an ORM to have an, a project to try <laughs> higher level Rust. Yeah. And you had like an end goal and you were like, oh, this is a thing I'm working towards. Yeah, but it was always, yeah, it was always very specific. And the fact that Crace.io existed actually helped as well because once Diesel was in a state where I could do like medium things, I then also had a real world app that I can go experiment with build, you know, actually, actually using the APIs to build stuff. But definitely like you're never going to go learn a language just without a thing to build. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about FizzBuzz enough to go through that. (laughs) Like you need to have more. Hi, I'm Eames Kobaisi. Um, a number of people on my team, uh, myself included, have been toying with the idea of starting an engineering blog. Um, a lot of times we feel like we have interesting things to share, and so I'm curious, how do you guys get started uh, either blogging individually or as a company? Um, do you have any tips or anything for starting that? 
the thing that helped me when I was blogging individually, we have a Skylight blog too, but that, those are a little bit more curated where we're like, oh, we have a problem or we had a postmortem, we'll write about this thing. But I've been blogging for like three years and the thing that helped me was having some sort of consistent schedule. I really work well with lists and schedules. <laughs> I learned this about myself and I was like, all right, now we know. But I, I basically would keep a notebook and this can obviously be in different forms for different people, but I would just like, Whenever somebody would say something I didn't know or use a phrase or like drop a name of something that I didn't understand, I'd just write it down and I was like, all right, that's a blog topic. That's a blog topic. And then I would just consistently every week, which may be a little bit ambitious. I don't know. It's depending if it's an individual blog or company blog, that might be a lot. But I would just work through those things and just have a backlog. And then it's, I think it lowers the barrier to entry in terms of like looking at a blank page and being like, okay, now what do I write? Because you have something to draw from. So that was really helpful to me. Schedule is also just good for, for general audience growth. And I'm sure it is no longer relevant to SEO, but about 10 years ago when I worked in marketing, it was a, it was a thing that was also useful for SEO. Yeah. I found like when I, when I started doing personal technical blogging, it was entirely built around the idea of like knowing that I wanted a new job and then I needed something to show to people that showed them I knew what I was talking about. And I knew mm -hmm. I couldn't publicly show them the code I had been working on. And so instead, I just wrote blog posts, a few of them, not a lot, but a few of them with good technical detail that showed like I really thought about this problem and tried to put like my own spin on it and wrote them for an audience I knew was basically just me because I knew nobody was going to find it ever. But I knew that when I was applying for jobs, I could be like, here's a thing I wrote about how Bundler works and why I think most people are using it wrong. <laughs> and like <laughs> that helped, I think. And then now that we have like the ThoughtBot blog, when I do write something, it's nice because I actually do get an audience. Yeah. But um, the engineering team thing, I would say it's it's been enormous for helping attract coworkers. Mm -hmm. It helps even with sales leads, not directly. Nobody's going to read like the last technical blog post I wrote and be like, we got to hire those people. But like, it helps when the developers on a team are like, wow, those people at ThoughtBot, they're smart and they know their stuff. And then when somebody's like, we're thinking about hiring consultants, the developers are like, you should talk to these people, right? And so it's kind of like a long game like that. But it's also just a rewarding experience for all of the employees that work there. And like, like Sean was saying, getting time to do that, perhaps like every Friday, somebody could write a blog post or mm -hmm. something. It's a good outlet for them. It's And you know, the company risks that person then using that outlet as a way to like, hey, look at this thing I wrote. But they're also giving a benefit. Like that is a benefit of like, we're going to give you a platform to do this stuff that shows that you're like making career growth and you're contributing to the community and things like that. I found it a very valuable platform as well because I, I used to blog all the time when I worked there and I don't blog anymore. Um, <laughs> I actually think Shopify probably does have an engineering blog. But one thing I really liked about that one in particular is I felt since it was consultancy, like I felt more comfortable writing about things that had absolutely nothing to do with stuff at ThoughtBot or even what I was working on there. Whereas, I don't know, I would feel like it would have to be something related to stuff with Shopify on like a feature release for Shopify that was yeah, or even just like here's a story that of a thing that you know mm -hmm. from working on Shopify. Like I, I wouldn't write a blog post about diesel and publish it on the Shopify. Uh, right engineering blog i keep a note on my phone that's just like things that i did at client projects that i think might make a useful blog post like i just wrote one on using yield self and that was just like that came straight out of a thing i did on client work and also i'm also pretty famous for in our technical slack channels at thoughtbot like when people say oh i have this problem and then a little while later like here was the solution i respond with blog post <laughs> and i like and sometimes it actually works but sometimes not but like don't feel like a blog post needs to be like this giant thing that is like super applicable to everybody it's just like mm -hmm. let's get this out there and 
it'll help somebody. I did really, really enjoy specifically that blog post would go through the same code review as anything mm. else did. Mm-hmm. That was um, enormously helpful. One piece of advice I would give, don't write blog posts that have part one in the title unless you have written part two. Because I think there are like three or four blog posts from me on the ThoughtBot blog that say part one, and I still get tweets like, hey, I can't find part two. Can you send me a link? That's wonderful. I've done that. I, I think I have one as well where I'm like, and then next week we'll look at this. And it's like, yep. Next week never next came. Next week never came. <laughs> but do you find that you'll sometimes forget things or you'll Google things and your blog post will show up? Yep. Because yeah. that's, whenever that happens, I'm like, yes, one past of, version of me d- was smart and did that. Because like future version of me actually needed it. It's like you can't contain that information I've, I've in got I've got an inverse case for you. Oh. ARL is not public API in Rails. And I often close issues telling people, hey, yeah, no, sorry, this isn't a bug because you're not using public API. And then they're like, ha ha, link to a blog post I wrote from before I started working on Rails about how to use ARL. <laughs> so it comes back to haunt you, too. A lot. In the first, maybe the first two weeks I worked at ThoughtBot, we were, before I worked at ThoughtBot, one of the blog posts I wrote was how, it was when Rails 3.1 had just come out, and I wrote about how to wrap, this is not a good idea anymore, but how to wrap JavaScript assets in gems so that you could use them with the asset pipeline. And nowadays, I would just suggest that you use Yarn for that in Rails. So I wrote a blog post about that. And then two weeks into my employment with ThoughtBot, I was working with Caleb, who's a former coworker of ours that I've mentioned on the show. He's been on the show before. And he wanted to wrap this asset that hadn't been wrapped yet. And so he was asking me questions. And I was like, oh, well, you have to do this. And he's like, well, I'm reading this blog post that says this. And I was like, scroll, scroll up. Scroll up, look at the sidebar, and there's like a picture of me in the sidebar. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Cool. That's good. Other questions? This is like more of an open-ended question, but do you guys have any like favorite software analogies that you use to describe stuff? Any software what? Analogies. Okay. Just like to real, real life. Oh. All my analogies are computer science. It's (laughs) problematic. I have a very good analogy, I think, for my talk tomorrow on the Rails router. But if I told you, then I would have to redo my slides, which are not done. So I'm going to let, I'm going to. You're going to tease it. Yeah, I'm going to tease it. There's a good (laughs) analogy there. But I don't know about broadly. Generally, if I'm using analogies, it's if I'm trying to teach a new language to somebody who I know knows a different language. and, And the only analogies I would ever draw are just like, yeah, it's just like this other thing in this other language. I don't know that I have any analogies that aren't just relating software to software that I use, though. Do you mean, like, in the sense of, like, software development is like building a house? Right, or, like, a well-designed app is sort of, like, what, like, a something? Right. I have traded off those analogies a lot when they're convenient for me. Uh, (laughs) Like, when I'm trying to make a point about deadlines or something like that, I'll find an industry where, like, that makes sense. But I don't think that there's a great, like... Software development is software development, and it's different than everything that we try and compare it to, I feel like. Software development is like the monkeys with a typewriter eventually producing Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with that one. Sure. That is a good one. <laughs> I'm going to borrow that. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us, Mighty. Thank you so much. Good luck at your talk tomorrow. Thank you. We'll link to it in the show notes if this comes out before then. But if it comes out if before... If it comes out before tomorrow? Before the... If it comes out at... Sorry. <laughs> We'll link to it's been a long day. Yeah, we'll I link know. to it in the show notes <laughs> if the video is available before this episode comes out. All right. Cool. <laughs> show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. 
If you have feedback about any of our episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bike shed.fm or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next time. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.